Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for being with us. The killers of Ahmad Abari have been found guilty of murder and are awaiting sentencing, which could be life in prison for all three. Some have deemed this the antithesis of the Kyle Rittenhouse acquittal and a reaffirmation of American justice, or the American justice system, depending on how you look at it. I say, not so fast. The timeline of the Arbery case demands sober, objective scrutiny. We know he was shot and killed on February 23, 2020 in Brunswick, Georgia. We also know there was very little notice of what happened to Ahmad, at least at first. It wasn't until May 5th, when graphic footage of his murder was uploaded by a local radio station, that people began to get outraged. And here is the irony. The footage was shot by one of the men convicted, William Roddy Bryan. It was brought to the station by Greg McMichael, a co-defendant, in an effort to sway the court of public opinion in their favor. Keep in mind that it was 74 long days, more than two months, between the murder and the arrests of Bryan, McMichael, and McMichael's son, Travis. During that period, the police did not make an arrest, and two district attorneys recused themselves without bringing charges. One of them faces criminal charges over her handling of the case. Ask yourself this question. Why did the wheels of justice turn so slowly in bringing the ju to justice, that is, three men who committed a barbarous act? After all, it only took two days for the jury to convict all three. I believe the answer lies in the various components of the criminal justice system, not just in Brunswick, Georgia, but nationwide. In order for justice to be done, all must work together and properly. One could argue that they certainly did not in the Rittenhouse case. In the case of Ahmad Arbery, it almost did not. That McMichael video as well as the national outrage on a continuing basis, played a big role in that ultimate conviction. Do not underestimate the protest movement that sprung up after Ahmad's murder. At first, it really appeared as if no one would be brought to justice at all. To those of us old enough to remember the bad old days of the South, the prosecutorial recusals and police inaction came as no surprise. And yet, aside from the incriminating video, it was public pressure, the public pressure of protest, that led to arrests and ultimately convictions. For those unfamiliar with protests and activism, it is, in fact, a lot like work. Sometimes the media will portray activists who lead protests or people who get involved in protests as professional protesters. Certainly, in this case, nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. That work includes contacting the media, getting up early in the day, calling friends and family to make sure they'll be in attendance. In other words, grunt work. It's often thankless, anonymous effort with no thought of getting your name in the paper or your face on camera. Your ultimate reward is too often fleeting. But in this case, it was nothing less than justice. The prosecutor in the case, 
Linda Dunikowski, deserves mention as well. She chose not to make race a centerpiece of her strategy. That was not without some risk. She had to convince a jury of 11 whites and one black in a jurisdiction where 25% of the population is black. Yet despite this, she managed to get three convictions after two days of deliberation. She also managed, along the way, to win the trust of the Arbery family. This is no small feat in the Deep South. Does it mean that the issues of racial justice are gone once and for all? Of course it does not. A lot of times when these kinds of cases come up, that's what you hear from people. Oh, well, it just goes to show that the justice system works and it's colorblind, etc., etc., etc. Nonsense. This is one case, and it is justice in one case, but it was also almost justice derailed. It ought to be recognized, however, for what it is. It is a small step toward the day when justice will truly be colorblind. In order for that to happen, however, numbers of white people will have to get over their fear of black people, specifically young black men. It was that fear, ultimately, that killed Ahmaud Arbery. Yet there is one hero in all this whose name needs to be remembered first and foremost. Her name is Wanda Cooper Jones, and she's Ahmad's mother. She relentlessly pushed for justice for her son, even pushed the Georgia legislature to pass a hate crimes bill. All that was the work I was talking about earlier, the grunt work, the thankless work, the work that doesn't always get your name in the paper. May that work never, ever cease. Up next, a new politically charged COVID variant and an equally charged migrant crisis across the pond. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Scientists have been warning since the summer that there was a risk of a new mutant coronavirus variant. Now, here it is. It was reportedly first discovered in South Africa just last week and has been given the name Omicron, or Omicron, depending on which side of the pond you're on. It's resulted in numbers of sub-Saharan countries being put on the so-called UK Red List. In other words, UK travelers who have been in those countries and coming back to the UK must take two PCR tests, which are expensive, by the way, as well as quarantine in a government-approved hotel for 10 days. And guess who has to pay? The traveler. The UK has returned to mandatory mask wearing in shops and on public transport. What's interesting is that very little is known about Omicron. But several governments across Europe are acting quickly, even in the face of violent protests against regulations in some countries. South Africa, among other sub-Saharan countries, feels hard done because South Africa itself was out front in identifying the variant, and now the country and its neighbors 
feel they are being punished. And remember, not a lot is known about this particular variant. It only came out in the middle of last week. It was only identified in the middle of last week. So far, three people have been identified as testing positive for Omicron in the UK, where I am. 13 people on a a flight from South Africa to Amsterdam have also tested positive. Scientists say, from what they know, that Omicron is highly transmissible. Symptoms may not be as bad, but it is highly transmissible. And that's pretty much all they know in the short term. The central question now is this. What is the possibility of rapid transmission through Europe and into the U.S.? Are governments around the world over or under reacting? Suffice to say, stakes are high. In England, there have been calls to fully implement the so-called Plan B, which would have, among other things, encouraged working from home. One could argue that politics and science don't always mix. Yet when the World Health Organization labels Omicron a variant of concern, something has to be done. And remember that certainly in the UK, politicians were stung by accusations that they did not act quickly enough. So this time around, they look like they're acting very, very quickly. Now, we don't know whether, they're, whether they have acted fast enough, not just yet. The current UK regulations will be reviewed in three weeks. Let's hope for good news when that review takes place, being very close to Christmas. And, you know, UK residents last year had to deal with the problem that took place right around the holidays. And it killed Christmas for a lot of people. Already, there are issues with people who are in Southern Africa, UK residents in Southern Africa, other European countries' residents who are in Southern Africa, who now are facing a dizzying array of flight cancellations and confusion about what they're supposed to do and how they will get access to the tests that will allow them to come back to the UK and come back to Europe. Omicron isn't the only thing confounding the British government right now, however. Last week, 27 migrants trying to cross the English Channel in a dinghy tragically drowned. Despite the fact that several European countries take in many more refugees than the UK, some politicians here have tried to make the refugee issue a crisis that the French must somehow solve, being that they're coming from the French coast across the English Channel, in most cases to Dover. The French, for their part, seem at times to turn a blind eye to the criminal gangs charging migrants extraordinary amounts of money to make this extraordinarily dangerous crossing. To make matters worse, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson threw gasoline on a smoldering fire by making public a letter he sent French President Emmanuel Macron. In it, he suggested allowing British troops to patrol the French coastline, among other things. Now, imagine this, had the situation been reversed. Imagine if Macron had sent Boris Johnson a letter and said French troops ought to patrol the British coastline in order to stop these migrant crossings. 
you would not have heard the end of it. And in this case, of course, Macron was furious and promptly disinvited British Home Secretary Priti Patel from a meeting of European countries called to figure a way to stop the crossings. To me, the solution is obvious from the UK's perspective. Create safe, legal ways for refugees to come to the UK to press their asylum claims. Now, from the numbers I've seen, about 60% of the people who apply and are processed for asylum end up being allowed to stay. So it's not a gigantic number of people who are deemed economic migrants and therefore uh, sent back to where? France? No, the French won't take them back. And that is where these folks end up being in a political purgatory because people are arguing back and forth and back and forth and there is no final resolution to this. But there are safe legal ways for refugees to come to the UK, but they're not being used. Hell, you can get a, a, a boat that is actually seaworthy to bring them over if they could get processed quickly enough, but maybe therein lies the rub. At the same time, there needs to be cooperation to break the back of the criminal gangs profiting off migrant misery. And another thing, both the UK and the EU ought to pay closer attention to where these people are fleeing from. Look closely and you'll see countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Syria, Iran, all high up on the list, along with, strangely enough, Vietnam. What several have in common are the wars fought by the West on their territory. And by the way, you know, it's not just recently with Afghanistan. Go back to the beginning of the 21st century with what happened in Iraq. Look at Syria. Look at Yemen. Look at these different places and ask yourself, are people really willing to risk their lives to come to the United Kingdom just to make money? The fact of the matter is, these people are fleeing in desperate circumstances, desperate circumstances. But all that aside, there is a reason why common sense measures have not yet been taken. The political hay made by demonizing immigrants is too good to pass up. That would include, of course, the good old USA, where those demonized usually end up being Mexicans. One thing is for sure, squabbling between the UK, the EU, France, or whoever, squabbling accomplishes nothing. Never has, never will. And finally, the nexus of the pandemic, immigration, and worker shortages have created a bizarre twist to people coming to wealthier nations around the globe. Want to know how? Stick around. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley.
Welcome back to The Intersection. You might think that traditional hardline attitudes about immigration in wealthy countries wouldn't be at all affected by the coronavirus pandemic. Well, in some countries, that is starting to change. As people in some developing countries have been struck in, stuck that is in place by the pandemic, wealthier nations are starting to feel the pinch of an aging workforce coupled with experienced employees looking to change their work-life balance, as we've discussed before. How has this played out in some countries? Germany, for example, says it will need 400,000 new immigrants a year to fill a variety of jobs. Canada plans to give 1.2 million new immigrants residency by 2023. And that's not all. Some 30 nations, including Barbados, Croatia, and the United Arab Emirates, are looking to recruit what the New York Times calls mobile technology workers. While the U.S. and some other countries have maintained a hardline stance against immigration, which, by the way, has started to change with Joe Biden becoming president, there are signs that in other countries, those hardline stands may well be softening. And it's amazing absolutely amazing to me the contradictions between needing workers and demonizing immigrants. To be perfectly frank, this isn't the first time there have been worker shortages that have led nations to recruit people from other countries. It goes back centuries. Some may have forgotten that the U.S. at one time put ads in European newspapers offering immigrants land to come to the U.S., so too have there been contradictions, such as when the country brought tens of thousands of Chinese workers to America to build railroads, only to pass the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which denied entry to Chinese people until the early 1940s. Fast forward to the current day, and some of those contradictions remain. On the one hand, European nations are arguing about migrants legitimately fleeing dangerous situations in their home countries, which we just discussed, but at the same time, they're looking for workers both skilled and unskilled. They develop point systems aimed at keeping the unskilled out, but then face empty store shelves because they can't get truck drivers to bring food to supermarkets. These contradictions are deep to contemplate. The other side of the equation is this, and every wealthy country on the planet knows it. Some of the most amazing and innovative ideas and products known to mankind were developed by immigrants to various wealthy countries. New York City is the vital place it is, specifically because about 35% of its people were born in another country. That's right, 35% of its people were born in another country. And you can walk the streets of New York and you hear different languages, you see the melding of different cultures only in America and specifically in New York City. Can you find people who meet, fall in love, and who come from wildly different places on the planet? And they make families and their kids go on to school and on to college and become productive American citizens. Hardline anti-immigrant politicians know this, 
But they also know there's no more sure way to appeal to a xenophobic base than to favor building a wall or portray immigrants as criminals, as Donald Trump once did. Some governments, on the other hand, work hard to integrate immigrants into the larger populations and provide skills training for those who need it. Sooner or later, people in wealthy countries are going to have to decide what kind of nation they want to live in. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe most people don't see the world the same way I do. I believe in fairness, in liberty, and justice for all people, regardless of circumstance, regardless of how or where they come from. I hope, I sincerely hope, most people see the world the way I do. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.